My name is Gene Colan, and welcome to my studio. Each time I got a story, it was always uppermost in my mind as to how different can I make this one, and this one, and so on. And as they came in, it was, I just threw myself into it, lived another life in a sense. I tried to get into that story myself. I tried to jump into the page and try to imagine what it would be like to see it visually as an outsider. When you have it developed a style, it's as recognizable as your hand, as your handwriting. Same thing. I wanted the, the story to be sort of uh, mystifying and sinister. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Batman Nightcast. Wait a second, this is not Nightcast. This is Showcase Gene Colon, the occasional feature of FW Presents where I examine comics by my favorite artist, the genial Gene Colon. I'm Ryan Daly, and the reason for my confusion, or pretend confusion for the sake of a unique introduction, whatever, is that the subject for this episode is, at last, Colon's work on the Dark Knight Detective. Here to help me talk about Batman, issue 343, is a veteran podcaster who, in the past, has hosted shows dedicated to Star Trek, the Peter David Hulk, Gambit, Daredevil, big Gene Colon connection there, and of course, the Caped Crusader. Please welcome Mr. J. David Weeder. What's up, Dave? Yes, but of course, you can call me Dave. I will. I think you already got that in there, yeah. <laughs> Um, as a as a former Batman podcaster, where did your fandom for Batman begin? Ooh, um, probably about eighty six when it was not long after this. When uh, no eighty four, eighty four, I got a Fisher Price tape recorder and a book and tape called Case of the Laughing Sphinx. <laughs> and I think I knew about Batman with Super Friends, but this was the one that really kind of laid it out. It showed Robin's origin. It showed the villains. And then it just kind of built from there where I would start reading some of the current issues. And there was this Jason Todd kid. That's not Robin. <laughs> and then, of course, just kind of you hit 89. And who wasn't a Batman fan at that point? I was sure. 11 years old. So, right. <laughs> right in the target market. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was Batman wasn't my first comic. I, I had a few G.I. Joe comics before then, kind of sporadically since 88. But really, once the movie hits... And my brother was picking up a bunch of, like, trades of, like, you know, Dark Knight Returns and, and Year One and A Death in the Family and kind of reading those. And then once 1990 is when I discovered, hey, I can actually find these at my local grocery store and I know how to pick them out for myself. Um, and then, yeah, that, that was, I, was, I was hooked on Batman for years after that and uh, never, never really stopped. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you say you would still be in your Batman phase? Uh, I mean... Uh, I I like Batman. It's it's <laughs> it's the other people that <laughs> like Batman that I sometimes take issue with. But um, uh, of all of the the sort of many eras and incarnations of Batman, do you have a favorite? Do you have like a sweet spot? Yeah, and it's not far removed from this. It's kind of a sub era, if you will. If you look around the time of Batman and the Outsiders, and just before that, you have this era within an era because it's still kind of the Bronze Age, but there's some radical stuff happening. Jason Todd, Batman Leaves the Justice League. It is kind of an intense era, actually. Yeah. Early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, right around that time. Yeah, yeah uh, I would say from, what is it, 83 is 82 
So not far removed from this at all. Yeah, yeah. And some subplots that I like are actually, you know, starting to be seeded here by the writer of this said book that we have not announced yet. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, I, yeah, and we're going to get to, I mean, being the being the Gene Colan thing, like I, I realized based on my love and my, my appreciation for him, you know, when I saw, when they did the Tales of the Batman Gene Colan Volume 1, I scooped that up and it was my first time reading uh, probably all of those stories. Um, because the Bronze Age of Batman was a blind spot for me prior to that. I, I mean, I, you know, getting into like the, you know, the late 80s and early 90s Batman and then just through collecting back issues and stuff, I had probably gone about as far back, like a year's worth of stories from Batman and Detective set prior to the crisis or like before, you know, year one and that, that changeover. Mm. Um, and then yeah, I'd read some of the Silver Age stuff collected in like Showcase Presents Batman, but a lot of the stuff from like the the Doug Munch and Jerry Conway eras and all those things they were they were blind spots to me. So reading these stories, really, I was I was captivated by it and, and just so energized by the, that era that I started picking up all of the other ones like the Marshall Rogers collection and then the Don Newton collection and the Jim Aparo ones with the Brave and the Bold stuff. Um, so that has been an era that I am I am still so, uh, discovering some of and and really really digging like the the late seventies early early eighties stuff now that that whole era and output it's just to come into that decades removed is is a very interesting experience. Yeah, it's kind of it's not aware of itself in the way anything post eighty nine would be. Right, it just yeah. kind of allows itself to be a good Batman story or bad one occasionally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe just because of the the writers and their experiences, I mean, it it does feel a little bit marvelized without without taking like the the post Batman Year One approach, so or the post Crisis approach. But yeah, um, favorite Batman villain or villains? Um, I have to go with Catwoman. I think Selena's just so magnetic because she's not entirely a villain. She's out for her own, but you can never figure out exactly where to put her and i like that that she she defines she defies definition nice yeah she'd be on my list too yeah especially as played by julie newmar but. <laughs> and um a favorite artist or artists and i i am not setting you up you do not have to say gene colon just because that's the subject of the show um but just yeah if like you had like a top three or a top four Ooh, yeah. Okay, I can do a top three. See, Gene Colan, I, I always put in the Daredevil column. Yep. And and my love for Gene Colan in that is, is well documented. Mm-hmm. I'd have to go with Jim Aparo. I love his sleek designs, just the way it looks. Um, Norm Brayfogel. Yep. Man, that, that was a mind blower when I opened that up after 89. And then uh, maybe, I, I mean, I got to give credit to Carmen Infantino. He was very good at what he did when he showed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Even though he wasn't into the into the comic at all. He was there. It's a job. But he still put his his all into it. Yeah, and and did one of the most recognizable images of Batman and Robin that uh, my Nightcast partner Chris Franklin swears by. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's on it's a Funko Pop that I have on my shelf right now. Cool, cool. Uh, all right, well, uh, let us get to our story, which is Batman three hundred and forty three. It has a cover date of January nineteen eighty two and a price tag of sixty cents. According to Mike's Amazing World of Whiskey and Ice Cream, the actual street date was October fifteenth, nineteen eighty one, meaning that I was all of three weeks old when this issue came out. 
I would have been four, almost four, nice. on the 19th. All right, okay. Yeah, there you go. Uh, the cover by Gene Colan and Dick Giordano shows Batman pinned to a wall by several throwing knives as another slices through the air heading straight for his heart. The text says, A dagger so deadly and introducing a startling new villain presented by Jerry Conway, Gene Colan, and Klaus Janssen. And then, toward the bottom, there's a blister promising a backup Robin adventure. Dave, what do you think of this cover? Man, this is a startlingly good cover. And it does, it leans into Gene Colan's strengths, which is motion. Yeah. Because Batman's not doing anything, but it's definitely kinetic. Mm Mm-hmm. It's it's one of those things. I mean, it's it's a thing where like with with Colin, you just have to kind of like roll with like. I'm not sure if like the the figure like Batman looks thicker than I'm used to, and like his head is a little, little bit wider, um, which was always sort of the case with him. He tended to draw his heroes like Daredevil was always like wider by Colin than he was with you know Miller or Mazzuchelli or people like that. Uh, and, and the case seems to be that for Batman, but like with the with the positions and the knives throwing there, I mean it's a it's a startling cover. I mean, you, you, wow, I mean you don't need to get lost in anatomy and things like that if you're looking at this like wow, what's what is going on with this? So, yeah. All right, let's get into the story. As advertised on the cover, A Dagger So Deadly is written by Jerry Conway and illustrated by Gene Colan with Klaus Janssen inking. The story is lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Dick Giordano. Picking up from the story last issue, Batman has been searching for Kirk Langstrom, better known as the Man-Bat, in a series of caves outside Gotham City. After a long night of spelunking with no sign of Langstrom, Batman abandons the search. He gets in the Batmobile and heads back to the city just before dawn. In the Batcave beneath Wayne Tower, Alfred Pennyworth dusts the Batman's trophies when he receives a call from his master. He reminds Master Bruce of his meeting with the Wayne Foundation Board of Directors that morning. Batman resigns himself to the fact that he won't get any sleep before that meeting, and darkly reflects on the toll his double life is having on his body. Suddenly, he catches sight of a costumed figure driving a motorcycle up alongside a semi-truck. The motorcyclist throws a knife with expert marksmanship. The knife pierces the truck's tire, sending it crashing into a building. The motorcyclist pulls up alongside the truck's cabin, and Batman overhears the knife thrower tell the driver his boss better pay his protection money next time before taking off. Batman gives chase in the Batmobile, but the motorcyclist throws a second knife that pierces the Batmobile's engine, starting a fire. Astonished by the feat, Batman directs the burning Batmobile over the edge of a bridge before it can explode, endangering others. The Dark Knight tosses a bat rope and swings to safety as his car crashes into the Gotham River below. A few hours later, Bruce Wayne goes to Gotham National Bank to meet with the Wayne Foundation board members. The chairman is deeply concerned about documents signed by the board, including Bruce liquidating the foundation's holdings and giving them over to a woman named Ivy. Bruce knows the truth, that the entire board signed over the fortune to poison Ivy while under a hypnotic spell from one of her toxins, and the same spell compels them to stay silent about it. Ivy shows up saying, where my money at? The chairman tells her it'll take a week, which means Batman can handle this little subplot in a future issue. 
Meanwhile, the knife-tossing motorcyclist calling himself the Dagger visits Lanier's jewelry store to terrorize the customers and demand protection money from the jeweler. When a security guard tries to tackle him, Dagger draws a short sword and slices the man's belt so that his pants fall, tripping him. The jeweler takes out a small gun, but Dagger tosses a knife that pins the man's jacket to the wall, causing him to drop it. Dagger gives them one more warning about paying for protection before jumping on his motorcycle and riding off. Gonna gloss over another recurring subplot where Arthur Reeves meets with some shadowy mystery person to get help on with his mayoral campaign, help in the form of photographic proof of Batman's secret identity. Dun dun dun! That night, Batman takes the Bat boat to the river where the Batmobile crashed. He puts on some scuba gear. Sorry bat scuba gear and dives down into the water. He finds the wreckage of his car and pries the hood open so he can retrieve the knife that disabled the vehicle. Batman identifies the blade's manufacturer, Rennington Steel. Yep, Rennington Steel. He drives out to the company's headquarters, a large estate some 20 miles outside the city, and meets with David Rennington, the latest in the family line that has been making high-quality steel blades for centuries. Rennington tells Batman about the glory and the honor his family's craft once received, but lately they've fallen on hard times as the demand for good quality edged weapons has apparently declined. Go figure. Rennington goes to get the company's sales figures that Batman requested, but when he comes back, as Batman surmised, he is donned in the garish purple and gold-ish costume of the Dagger. Dagger tosses a knife that pins Batman's cape to the wall, but Batman is able to free himself before Dagger slices him up. Batman runs onto the factory floor, but Rennington has the advantage of fighting on his home turf. When Batman leaps out of the shadows, Rennington is ready and flips Batman onto a conveyor belt where a pneumatic press cuts the steel blades. Batman dives off the conveyor just in time and takes cover in the display room full of mannequins dressed as feudal knights and duelists. Rennington pursues the detective, hell-bent on killing the Batman to preserve his secret identity and the honor and dignity of the Rennington name. From the shadows, a caped figure flies toward Rennington again, and once again the dagger is ready, but this time he plunges his blades into the attacker only to discover that it was only one of the displayed dummies dressed with Batman's scalloped cape. Too late, Dagger hears the sound of a breaking chain from up above. He glances up and sees the capeless Batman standing on a giant display sword that swings down at Dagger. The hilt cracks Rennington on the head, knocking him unconscious. Sometime later, the local Stokely New York police are called to Rennington Steel and find the Dagger captured for them. As the sun begins to rise, Batman drives home in his replacement Batmobile. Alrighty, what did you think of the debut of the Dagger, Dave? It was a lot of fun. I liked that it was self-contained, except for the subplot check-ins, but it was a really well-done issue all in all. Because detective work was involved, it was self-contained, as I mentioned. Just a good, fun issue. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, and I mean, there are a lot of fun, fun stories in this uh, in this run by Colin. I mean, there's there's things with vampires because that's what you do when you've got Gene Colin as your artist. <laughs> yeah. You write some stories about vampires. Um, the story after this with Poison Ivy is a lot of fun. It's got an element that 
I think it helped inspire the animated series episode House and Garden, which was cool. Um, although Conway, he writes a poison ivy that is much more physical than I'm used to. She actually like punches out a gangster, and I'm not sure about that. Um, but this story I liked, and in part is because I had completely forgotten that this character existed when Chris and I reviewed Batman 400 on the first episode of Nightcast. Um, I was like, who is that guy? And he's like, oh, that's that guy. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember, like, where else did this, and he, like, nowhere else, like, he never showed up anywhere else, like, he was in a few, maybe, group shots from this era, but I don't think he ever had another actual story, and I was thinking about that, and I, I was trying to, like, figure out, like, why this guy didn't make a comeback as one of Batman's recurring villains, and... Let me let me toss this at you and see if you agree. I mean, his gimmick isn't linked to a specific kind of pathology or obsession, which is pretty common amongst Batman's rogues galleries. So maybe he just doesn't work as a good Batman villain. He doesn't kind of fit the theme. Um, I, I think he could be like a good utility villain for somebody like Green Arrow or Black Canary or any one of a dozen like kind of like street level dc heroes the thing is with the the sort of acrobatic skills like the the motorcycle the kind of pirate boots and the costume he's got a swashbuckling look and i think he would be really good as a daredevil villain or even in a captain america story and after i read the story again yesterday i found myself thinking Jerry Conway and Gene Colan just created this guy for the wrong universe. He should be a Marvel villain. Actually, I think you could make it work because he's he's the opposite end of Bruce Wayne, kind of like Oswald Cobblepot. He's made of ego. This is his damaged ego. Mm-hmm, true. He's trying to rebuild the family, kind of like if you ever read Craven's Last Hunt, that's kind of where Craven was trying to reclaim some dignity. And I think if you played with that, it could work. <laughs> and for Daredevil, we've already got Bullseye. So <laughs> true enough. True enough. Yeah. Well, then, I mean, then then he's just sitting on the table waiting for somebody to to use him again. Yeah. And, hey, he wears a mask over his face, as in nose and <laughs> <Yeah>. mouth. <laughs> so he, if, so, if Dagger, he's topical. If Dagger can break the Batmobile while, while wearing a mask, you can shop at Costco. <laughs> Nobody ever held a protest rally outside a sign that said, no shirt, no shoes, no service. <laughs> um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I, I didn't even think about that. Like the the connection of like he comes from money. He's he comes from this legacy. He's trying to preserve the family name and and yeah, he just he, he resorts to this criminal. But yeah, but I don't know. I also, I mean, I still, I mean, for almost the same reason, I think he could have been a good foil for Ali Queen. Yeah, I could see that too. He, they they both have the marksmanship uh, thing. Only daggers is with a throwing weapon instead of instead of with a, the archery. Yeah, it could work perfectly. He's out there somewhere. DC, I assume, still owns him. Yeah, yeah, they would. Yeah, and but uh, I mean, Batgirl could use him. Blue Beetle could use him. He could have joined the Suicide Squad. I mean, uh, yeah, uh-huh. I mean, he's got a good look, a good gimmick, pretty simple. I think, I think this guy's ready, ready to be used again. Uh, we mentioned, uh, when I was talking to Mac on the Iron Man episode for Gene Colan, uh, Colan was really good at drawing cars. He knew the physicality and, and the vehicles and everything like that. But on the fourth page of the story, when the truck is crashing, 
I that doesn't look like the front of a truck I've ever seen. There's just something off about it. The cab is too small. Yeah. Like, it looks yeah, it's just proportionately wrong. Unless yeah, I, I was thinking the wheel was flying off, but no, that's the trailer. So there goes that. And like the, like just like the whole grill in the front bumper, it just it seems yeah, I, I don't know. Something about that seems off. Um the motorcycle looks good and, and like the the motion, the action and everything looks good and and yeah, the fact that he can take out the Batmobile with just the little the blade is really intense. It's a good outing for the character. I had a double reaction. First, I'm like, that's really cool. And then I thought, I don't think that works. <laughs> the blade going into the engine? Eventually, I learned to just let it go. But at the same time, that's pretty thick steel. <laughs> it's the Hattori Hanzo blade. It can just chop yeah, through, through anything, yeah. And the hood pops open, which I thought was cool. Mm-hmm. There, there's something, it must be, like, it doesn't seem practical but there's just like a, a whimsy and a romance i i love the open top batmobile the convertible batmobiles no matter who's mm-hmm. what the specific design is maybe it's just it's something out of like the the 66 tv show and and everything that came out and even like i mean the the superpowers and everything like that but something about the batmobile with the open top that allows his cape to be blowing in the wind uh it seems dangerously impractical and reckless but i just i love the the visuals of it I like it too, and here's the thing: if you're gonna if you're gonna buy in, where Batman can jump out of a car, wrap a batarang, and not have his arm you know <laughs> pulled out of his socket, you can go with a, a open canopy Batmobile. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. What do you think of the way Colin draws Bruce Wayne? Well, on page six, he has a receding hairline, but the rest of the issue, he looks pretty on point. He looks very haggard, which fits with the story. Like he's been not sleeping, you can tell. It's taking its toll. Yeah. And he's got like this sort of longer, sort of like wavy hair, like coming off of the part and everything like that. But also this weird kind of, he's wearing a, a, a three piece suit, but it's got like this plaid motif going on. It was the eighties. <laughs> I, I guess. Yeah. If, uh, okay, here's a question. If Batman needed to study one of daggers knives, I, I think he probably could have found other other knives in like police evidence besides the one that was in his car. I don't think he had to go scuba diving. That's a good point. I didn't think that about that because he was just present when a truck took a few knives. Right. <laughs> and he, he was still on foot there. He was he's not yeah, far from yeah. that scene. And, just grab it while you're there, dude. Right. And then the the dagger he attacked the jewelry store and left several daggers behind at that scene of the crime. I think he just could have probably just could have like stopped by Commissioner Gordon's office and said I need one of those I, I need one of those knives. But it's an excuse to use the bat boat and regular scuba gear, not stylized like Jim Lee. <laughs> he just has regular scuba de- gear. For some reason that was really refreshing. Again, it's it's the unpretentiousness of it. <laughs> yeah. I did want to point out Remington Steel because I did some research. Okay. The show Remington Steel did not appear until about a, until October of 1982, a year later. Okay. So, oddly enough, not a pun. <sighs> Would that, I mean, the show was based on something, though, wasn't it? Not that I know of because the concept of the show was she created a, a fake detective because being a female, she wasn't getting enough traffic. And then Pierce Brosnan... This mystery man comes in and assumes that identity. I don't know that it was previously based on anything. I didn't look that up. Let's find out some Remington Steel trivia. It was. It started in October 1982. You're right. So it was, it was months after this. Was that really not a thing? I, I would have sworn this was based on something that preceded this. Nope. 
It was a, it was actually an original show. They did that in the eighties. So Jerry Conway comes up with a character named Rennington Steele, and half a year later, there's a TV show called Remington Steele. Mm-hmm. Just saying, Jerry Conway may need to cash in on that. I, okay, that had okay. That I <laughs> there had to be something there. Like, who comes up with the name Rennington? Steele? Okay, David Rennington. No relation. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Somebody. One of our listeners. Somebody has to come up. They, I find it very hard to believe that 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 Conway made this up without thinking of something else. That that it wasn't based on something else. That the only thing I could think of is Remington, the the gun factory. Right. Gun, right. But I don't think of knives when I think of that. Right. Ah. ah this is gonna bother me. <laughs> Some, somebody listened to this like help me help us come up with a definitive answer was there any could Rennington Steel the, the name for this, this company which sounds so much like a pun but it might not have been could that have been based on anything in popular culture or literature or the zeitgeist that Jared Conley could have taken it from and then also might have inspired the Remington Steel show I, I don't know that's very interesting. I, I'm God. I'm glad. I, I, I am. I, I am glad that you looked this up because I just assumed. Huh. Yeah. Well, that was the first thing I thought of too. So, yeah, so weird. So, and then there's a Batman connection with Remington Steel because Steph, uh, Stephanie Zimbalist was in it, and then Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. was the voice of Alfred. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It all comes back to Batman. <laughs> it does. Trademark. <laughs> <laughs> um. Favorite page or, or moment in this story? The standout page, I'm flipping back to it, page three, there's a close-up of Batman's face, and you can see the where the mask ends and his face begins underneath it. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of uh, Jerry Ordway's depiction of Michael Keaton's Batman, how he was so detailed and so lifelike. That really nailed it for me. Oh, yeah, yeah. I like that one, too, yeah. Um, I like I like page five with the action with the knife going into the car and the car swerving out of control. Um, the splash page toward the end when Batman is riding on the giant sword without his cape, sort of like I was going to sur- mention that one too. <laughs> surfing that as it plonks down on on his head. Uh, it's a very dramatic page. Cthud. <laughs> yeah. And hey, Batman used detective work and outsmarted the villain. Yeah, he did. And then he got a pun in at the end. Dagger just couldn't cut it. <laughs> Dagger just couldn't cut it. <laughs> nice. It's a good shot at the end. A good good side shot of him in the car, too. So. Uh, this issue, uh, if you actually get the, the physical issue, there is a backup story uh, about Robin, which is drawn by Trevor Von Eden. And people who have listened to my shows in the past know I have sort of a tough relationship with Trevor Von Eden because most of my experience with him was shaped by his work in the 90s Black Canary books and I did not like the art in those books and the miniseries was inked by uh, uh, Dick Giordano which kind of reined it in but once it got onto the Black Canary ongoing series that went for 12 issues the art just got progressively worse and worse and worse and I hated it and I had very bad things to say about him however Having seen some of Von Eden's work from like this era, from like the 70s and the early 80s, um, even like the the 
Legends tie-in to, to Batman that he did. Uh, there's a Batman annual with Ra's al Ghul that he drew, which looks really, really good. But this story, this short little Robin story, has some of my favorite Von Eden art ever. I think this is really, really good looking, and this is a cool style, and I wish more of his work looked like this. Yeah, I was wondering how this was going to go when you said Trevor on Von Eden, because I didn't have that part of the reprint. I'm like, ooh, I'm in for a treat or barrage of tirade? No, the story the story is simple enough. It's Robin has, has this little friend who's been uh, taken to this hospital, which is using, the hospital has been taken over, and it's a front for a drug uh, drug runners, and he has to sneak in. And the story, I mean, it's it's fine, but the art looks really really cool, and I, I like his depiction. And yeah, it's good good stuff, good stuff. So overall, I, I mean, it's as one particular story uh, for for Gene Colan's work in this uh, in his run of Batman I mean there are more memorable issues I, I admit but I thought this story was a lot of fun it's just a, a one little done one adventure as you said Batman gets to use his head gets to do some investigating of the crime scene and he tracks it down and he follows the lead so he's acting like a detective we get an original villain with a kind of a unique gimmick uh, that I wish they would do more of and some some good action scenes the way when they're fighting the last couple pages it's fun so this could have made a good episode of Batman the animated series I was thinking that too this would have been a good little you know done one yeah yeah all right. Well, uh, Dave, thank you very much for joining me on uh, this little showcase of Gene Colan. Where else can people hear you if they want to hear more from you? Um, archived episodes of Dave's Daredevil podcast are on 2TrueFreaks.com, including a couple of Gambit episodes that fizzled out because uh, technology and time. And um, you can also find the remaining episodes of the Dave Cave Batman podcast, where I <clears throat> borrowed Ryan's format and went to the <laughs> post-crisis era of Batman. Um, and hopefully at the beginning of the year of 2021, I will be back with something I'm working on. Very, very cool. Very cool. Looking forward to that. All right, listeners, we're going to take a break right now, but I will come back in a minute with your comments on the last episode. Don't go away. Did you leave the car running, Andy? I did. I'm not sure why, but I did. It, it, it's important. Like getting these comics from Ryan and Chris's Nightcast offices. Why are we getting these comics from Ryan and Chris? So, since Nightcast isn't covering what they originally set out to cover, I thought it would be fun to talk about the Jim Starlin run of Batman, so we're getting the comics from them to do that. And, and they know that we're doing this? What, that we're covering Batman issues 414 to 430? Yeah, totally, I, I checked in with them and everything. So you got permission to get these comics, which includes the storylines Ten Knights of the Beast, The Cult, and The Death in the Family. I totally told them we were covering these books, yes. And we're starting these episodes in May. That is, if you actually edit them on time. Yeah, Andy. The The series starts in May and can be found on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, Spotify, and at www.fortressofbailey2.com. Busting my balls and everything. All right, right, right. Let's, let's hurry up. There are listeners that want to hear this, and I have to get back to Atlanta in 28 hours so I can get my flight home. Oh, no problem. I got the comics right here. What's going on here? Andy? Mike? What are you doing here? Why do you have our comics? Say, Mike. Yes, Andy. We didn't get permission to take these comics, did we? No, Andy. And when you told me to get the box out of the car, you were really picking the lock to get in here? Yes, Andy. So what do we do now? Well, uh, we could try to talk our way out of this, but when I tell you to run, run!
The Overlooked Dark Knight covers the Jim Starlin Batman run, a multi-part series of episodes beginning in May of 2020. From the grisly dumpster killings, to a death in the family, and everything in between. The Overlooked Dark Knight is part of the Fortress of Bailytude Podcasting Network, located at www.fortressofbailytude.com. The show is also available on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, and Spotify. I'm back with your comments from the Fire & Water website, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Last episode, Chris Franklin and I covered Captain America 256, drawn by Gene Colan and written by Bill Mantlo. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I remember this as big, daft fun, and checking it out on Marvel Unlimited, it certainly is. Looking at it from a different perspective from originally, I'm seeing a lot of Frank Robbins in Colan's cap figures, especially the way the legs bend. What could it mean? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> especially considering what Frank Robbins could do with Cap's legs from time to time in the Invaders. I'm not sure if that's complimentary or what. Um, it, it is certainly possible. I mean, if that was going on, maybe, uh, maybe that's when Colin was drawing it. He was trying to keep it more in sync with the Invaders. I, I don't know. Uh, Martin then offered some clarification on the three different inkers who worked on the story. According to the Grand Comic Database, Dave Simons inked pages 1 through 10, and then 21 and 22. Al Milgram inked pages 11 through 16, and Frank Jacoya inked pages 17 through 20. Martin said, I wonder whatever happened to Simons. I remember liking him on Ghost Rider, and then... Question mark, file with Ian Aiken and Brian Garvey, who made Rom so much better. Uh, and then Damien Drought Witter, Whiter, I'm, I'm sorry, I never know how to pronounce your name. Please, if I'm horribly butchering this, and if you care, just let me know how your name is pronounced. Uh, Damien replied to Martin, Dave Simons continued to work in comics into the early 90s, mainly working on the Conan titles and DC's TSR titles, before moving into animation for a while, but then had a few health problems. I remember reading that he got help from the Hero Initiative. Sadly, he died a few years ago at a very young age, only 54. He was one of my favorite inkers for Gene Colan, and I wished he'd worked with him more, particularly as I think Gene was generally badly inked at DC. Uh, I don't know that I think Colin was poorly inked during his DC work. I think Bob Smith's inks on Night Force helped it feel atmospheric and, and crazy like it should have. Uh, I like Frank McLaughlin's inks on the Wonder Woman issues well enough. Not so much of a fan of the Klaus Janssen inks on the Batman title like we covered, but I don't hate it either. Uh, I, I can't deny, though, that I think his work at Marvel tended to look better cleaner, easier to follow. Is that because he was at a stronger part of his career, like a creative peak, or was it because his inkers were better suited to his style? I don't know. I, I, I don't know enough about their, their quirks and their individual talents and what they bring to the table, so I suppose a case could be made. Uh, and the other comment came from Lizanne Oswald, who said, For an inventory story, this is pretty good, as is the art. Then again, the Dean has always put out good art. The writer is definitely underrated. He's done great work in the past. Sadly, he can't create any more work. Poor man. The writer uh, mentioned there is Bill Mantlo, and I completely agree on his being underrated. In fact, 
Just a few days ago, we released a special FW Presents episode dedicated to the work of Bill Mantlo. You can hear me, the irredeemable Shag, Rob Kelly, and Max Romero talk about Mantlo's career and some of our favorite comics that he worked on. He was an incredibly talented storyteller. Uh, it's tragic that his career was cut so short by his accident and his state of health. Um, I also I want to sort of sort of correct uh, something that w- happened in the last episode, and, and I, it wasn't like a mistake. But when Chris and I talked about the Captain America story, I really focused and zeroed in on the art, um, primarily because that's the reason why I'm doing these episodes. And I think I kind of sounded dismissive of the story because it was an inventory story that was inconsequential. But that's deliberately so. That's the whole point of writing that type of story. Something that can be slotted in at any point in a character's history that's not going to shake things up or disrupt illogical character or story growth. The point is just to fill in the gap and give readers something to tie them over. And that can be difficult, but Manlo did a great job with it. I shouldn't have made it sound like the story was just fluff and didn't mean anything, because that was the assignment, and he still made it an enjoyable read. That's good writing. Um, So, as I said on this past Sunday's episode, if you get the chance to read a Bill Mantlo comic, take advantage of that opportunity. You're going to get something fun. Anyway, that is all for this episode. Thank you, Martin, Damien, and Lizanne for writing in last time. Thank you to Dave Weeder for appearing on this episode and talking about Batman with me. Next episode, the plan is to review the very first Doctor Strange comic that I ever read. Until then... Thanks again for tuning into this episode of FW Presents. If you enjoyed our discussion, please support the show on social media by liking or favoriting the post on Facebook and Twitter. You can leave a comment on the episode at fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can always go to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice five-star review for FW Presents or any other show on the Fire and Water Network. If you really like us, then please consider sponsoring the Fire and Water Network on Patreon. For more information, head on over to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. As always, thank you for listening.